Well, Scripture this morning, we're continuing uh, in a series we've been in in the Gospel of Mark. If you'd like to turn to the book of Mark, we're going to be in chapter 12, verse 33. But you can also find that text printed for you in your bulletin. 2012, Jonah Lair uh, was working as a writer for the New Yorker magazine. He'd also written many blogs and books and, and other articles. And he was getting ready to speak in front of about a thousand people. When he got a phone call where he found out that another writer had discovered that Lair in his book uh, Creativity had fabricated quotes from Bob Dylan. Kind of ironic considering the title of the book. Uh, Not only had he fabricated quotes, it also came out that he had plagiarized material in some of his writings. Uh, I heard him interviewed this past week and this is what he said. He said, I'd been a lifelong Dylan fan and was familiar with approximate versions of what he'd said, so I put in those approximations to make it sound better, to make it sound as if I'd actually done my homework, and then I forgot they were there. There's no excuse for what I've done for breaking the most basic rule of journalism, don't make stuff up. I was driven by a mixture of insecurity and ambition. No matter how high I got, and I got really lucky really fast, I was convinced that it would all disappear that I had to grab the chance and the checks while I could. So I said yes to everything, columns, blogs, books, articles, talks. Instead of focusing on the difficult pleasures of writing, checking, and rechecking my work, I judged myself by the superficial markers of success, the sound of applause in a hotel conference room, my Amazon sales ranking, an inbox full of invitations, and then it all fell apart. Uh, Jonah Lair had used his God-given resources, his writing talents, his intellect, his abilities to find security, to find affirmation, to find for himself a sense of worth. He had used uh, uh, those resources to create a covering for himself. And when he felt his resources weren't sufficient to do that, he stole resources from others. Uh, What I want to do this morning, and and think about this as we read the text, is I want to paint two pictures for us. I want to paint a picture of what it looks like when we use our resources for ourselves. And to think about why we do that. And then I want to paint a picture of what it looks like when we give our resources away and use them for others and how we can become that second type of person. So uh, look with me in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. This is God's word. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. 
And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this uh, scripture you've placed before us this morning. Uh, I pray that you give us ears to hear the truth of it, uh, eyes to see your goodness, eyes to see what Jesus has provided for us so that we might be those who would uh, in turn provide for others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, the picture I want to paint is what does it look like? What does it look like? when we use our resources for ourselves? What does it look like when we use our resources simply for ourselves? In verse 38, uh, Jesus warns us to beware of somebody. He warns us to beware of the scribes. Uh, A scribe was kind of an Old Testament professor, moralist, and lawyer all rolled into one. Uh, They like to wear long flowing robes that that set them apart as rabbis and as men of standing in the community. They had the best seats at church. People rose when the the scribes passed by in the marketplace. They prayed long prayers to make themselves look holy and religious. Uh, They were men who sought reputation. They sought recognition. They craved applause. They were proud. And they were greedy. Uh, Jesus says here that they devour widows' houses. And we're not sure exactly what that means, but apparently they were using their position to take advantage of of widows. Kind of like if uh, I visited a widow in the church with limited financial resources and I said, Trust me, I'm the preacher. I can help you manage your money. Yes, Panthers tickets are a great investment. Just just trust me in this. So they they were using their position to take advantage of the vulnerable. Now, think back to our our opening illustration. It's interesting, isn't it? How much a secular author for the New Yorker uh, and a conservative Jewish religious person can have in common, isn't it? Because if you think about it, both of them were ruled by ambition. They were driven by applause. They craved the approval of others. They chased the security that success could bring them. Both of them used the resources that God had given them for themselves. They used their own resources to try to get to a place where they felt validated, where they felt acceptable, where they felt recognized, where they felt okay about who they were. Now, why would two people on the outside look so very different? How could they be driven by the same sort of internal desires? Well, if you go back in the Bible to the book of Genesis, Genesis 2 tells the story of the creation of Adam and Eve and and God brings them together as husband and wife. And, and you read immediately after that that they were naked and they were not ashamed. Then in Genesis 3 we read the story of Satan coming and tempting them. And they disobey God by eating the forbidden fruit. And as soon as they have eaten of the forbidden fruit we read this. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. When 
Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they, they felt something that they had never felt before. They felt a sense of shame. They felt a sense of guilt. They felt a need to cover themselves. And we've been covering ourselves or trying to cover ourselves ever since. We inherit from Adam and Eve that sin nature and the guilt and the shame that goes along with that. We know that there's something wrong with us. We know that there is something broken. We know that we don't measure up, that that our relationship with God is broken. But rather than run to Him, that, that He might deal with our brokenness, that He might deal with providing us a covering, we try to create coverings for ourselves. We labor for a sort of works righteousness. And this is true, I think, whether we consider ourselves religious or not. We're all busy crafting coverings. We all crave a sense of security. We want to know that we're okay and that we're going to be okay. Uh, Some of those coverings we craft are are obviously religious. Well, I, I just go to church because that's what good people do. And so I want to be perceived as a good person, so I'm going to do that. But we create coverings in other ways as well. Uh, I was reading an article in The Atlantic this week about what they refer to as our diet culture. And I just want you to listen to what, what the author said here. The only common thread between competing dietary ideologies is the belief that by adhering to them, one can escape the human condition and become a pure, less animal kind of being. This is why arguments about diet get so vicious so quickly. You are not merely disputing facts. You're pitting your wild gamble to avoid death against someone else's. You're poking at their life raft. But if their diet proves to be the one true diet, yours must not be. If they are right, you're wrong. This is why diet culture seems so religious. People adhere to a dietary faith in the hope they will be saved. That if they're good enough, pure enough in their eating, they can keep illness and mortality at bay. We, we do that, right? As a culture, we use diets to find security, to fend off death, to develop a sort of uh, food righteousness, uh, a covering that we use for ourselves. I eat the right things, so I'm better than those people that eat terribly. Or I eat food that was produced ethically and sustainably, so I'm better than those people that eat food that was processed or whatever. Uh, we use it as a covering. Uh, going hand in hand with diets, uh, we've been told by uh, the movies, uh, by our friends, perhaps by our parents, that another way to feel okay about ourselves is to maintain the perfect ideal body image and weight. Uh, I was listening to a podcast this week, and uh, there was a woman on the podcast who said that for her friends who are struggling to lose weight, uh, that was often connected with a mom who had just always been after them as a child telling them that they needed to lose weight. And that some of them, even now in their heads, they couldn't eat a certain food because they would hear their mom's voice saying, don't eat that, that's going to make you fat if you eat that. Uh, she went on to talk about friends who were struggling around with eating disorders and almost all of them said they had been fat shamed when they were younger. Uh, as a culture, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, we pride ourselves on the fact that we're not so uptight about sexual mores any longer. 
But we've replaced that, right? We've got new commandments. And one of the new commandments is, Thou shalt not weigh more than, than whatever. And then there's some of us that are, that are trying to live up to that commandment. Not just so we can be healthy, but we're trying desperately to live up to that commandment because we're convinced if I live up to this, then I'll find life. And everything's going to be okay. And so we use diets and ideal body weights as this covering so that we can feel like we're all right. These diets, these weights. We even use things that we're mad about for coverings. Uh, the, the same podcast I was listening to, they were talking about the date. There's a new dating app coming out. Last week I talked about Tinder. Uh, this week we're talking about Hater. There's a new dating app come out, coming out called Hater. And here's the way Hater works. Uh, what it does is it gives you a list of like 2,000 things to comment on. And you either like it or you don't like it or you love it or you hate it. All right. And so what it does is it matches you up with people who hate the same things. All right, you hate Donald Trump, you hate Hillary Clinton, you hate gluten-free people, you, you, know, you hate Jay-Z, whatever it is you hate. And they, they match you up with people who hate the same things that you do. And you know what, that's going to work. All right, that, that is going to work because studies have even shown that we tend to bond more with people who hate the same things we do than we do with people who like the same things that we do. Right, you, you've experienced this, right? Like you've just connected with somebody because there was something you both hated and you could rant about together. The, the fundamentalists or the Republicans or the Democrats or, or whoever that just makes you crazy. And oh, we both hate the same thing and we share this bond together. Why is that? Why does that happen? I, I think that happens because when we have this mutual dislike it gives us this shared mutual sense of righteousness. Oh, there's somebody else with me and we both hate them and, and we're in the right and we're thinking correctly about it. And so there it is. There's my covering, our, our mutual dislike of the same thing. We're in this together. We want to have the right diet. We want to have the right weight. We want to have the right political party. We want to have the right football team and the right music and hate all the right things and be on the right side of history because then we have our covering. Then we have our covering. We, unlike all those people, whatever their view may may be, unlike all those other people, we're right. We're right. And it's also religious, even if we say it's not. It's also religious. It's all an effort at works righteousness that stems from the fact that because of our rebellion against God, because of this sin nature we inherit from Adam and Eve, none of us are righteous. And so we try to craft a righteousness. We try to craft a covering. And the more we're caught up in that, the more we're caught up in trying to craft our own covering, our own righteousness, the more we're trying to create a sense of security for ourselves in an insecure world, the more we're going to devote our time and our talent and our treasures to ourselves. I've got to I've got to fix me up. I've got to make me look okay and presentable. So I'm going to spend my resources on me. And so we can make career so- choices not based on 
how can I serve people, but what's going to give me the most standing in the community? How am I going to be perceived by others? We'll spend the bulk of our money on ourselves because we're busy creating comfortable kingdoms for ourselves. We'll be immobilized by what other people might think of us. We'll be like the scribes. Maybe not as blatantly religious, as obviously religious, but scribes living for recognition and applause and security. That's our first picture. What would it look like if we weren't so obsessed with creating a covering for ourselves? What if we had a sense of security and worth that didn't stem from what we had accomplished or who approved of us? What would that look like? I think it would look a lot like our widow here in verse 42. Uh, Jesus is watching people come up and put money in the, in the offering box. And he notices that there were rich people who put in large sums of money. And then there's this poor widow who put in two small copper coins, which uh, would have been basically enough maybe to buy some flour or perhaps enough to, to make one meal. And Jesus says that that poor widow had actually put more into the offering box than any of the other rich people who deposited large sums in there. He says that they put in out of their abundance, out of their abundance and she put in out of her poverty all that she had to live on. Do you see why Jesus is commending her gift? Even though in reality it really was the smallest gift in Jesus' eyes, it was the biggest gift because of what it cost her to give it. You know, when, when you and I uh, give in such a way, whether that's to the church, whether that's to charity, whether that's to the poor, uh, when we give in such a way that it makes no measurable dent in our lifestyle, has it really cost us anything? When, when we treat tithing as, well, I'll give whatever is left over as long as it doesn't affect my standard of living. What is that saying? Uh, when, when I think about the poor with the last 0.5% of my income, so that it really causes me no difficulty, I really don't have to think about that at all. Am I really bearing anyone else's burden if I don't take it on myself in some way? Uh, Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician. Uh, He was a Christian writer. It said that he came up with the idea of the bus. So you can thank him for that. Uh, but, But Pascal was known for his generosity. He said, I love poverty because Christ loved it. I like wealth because it gives a means to assist the needy. Uh, It said that he sold his coach, he sold his horses, he sold a lot of his fine silverware and his furniture, and he just gave it all to the poor. And at his funeral, there were prominent people. There were scientists, there were colleagues, there were dignitaries, there were friends. And then the back of the church was filled with the poor. It was filled with people who Blaise Pascal had helped during his life. Uh, John Newton, the converted slave trader, who wrote the hymn uh, Amazing Grace, once counseled a young minister to say, You cannot, I trust, in good conscience, think of laying out one penny more than is barely decent unless you have another penny to help the poor. In other words, for every penny you spend on yourself that isn't an absolute necessity, you 
you ought to be spending a penny on the poor as well. The widow, Blaise Pascal, John Newton, instead of using resources for themselves, they gave away resources to others. Two pictures. Two pictures. Someone who uses resources for themselves, someone who gives away resources to others. How do we get to be that second person? Right? That's the question. It's easy to be the first person. How do we get to be that second person? How do you go from being someone who uses all your resources, your time and your treasure and your talents to create a covering, to gain for yourself a sense of security? How do you go from that to becoming someone who lets go and who gives freely? Well, I think the key is that we've got to find a better security and we've got to find a better covering than the ones that we construct for ourselves. How do we do that? We've got to go back in the text of verse 35. Uh, Verse 35, Jesus is teaching in the temple and says, How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Uh, It was commonly believed that the Messiah, when he came, would be a son of David. That he would come out of David's family line. And the scribes and everybody else understood that Psalm 110, which is what Jesus is quoting, they understood that that psalm was about the Messiah. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 110, he says, Yes, you're right about this being about the Messiah, but you need to think about what Psalm 110 actually says. In Psalm 110, David says, The Lord said to my Lord, and they would understand that as, as God says to my Lord, who is the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus says, well, look at that. David called the coming Messiah Lord. So what does that mean? Well, that means this coming Messiah, who is supposed to be of the line of David, is actually greater than David. He's a descendant of David, and yet he's greater than David. In other words, he's saying, why in the world would David refer to one of his descendants as my Lord? Unless he was more than just a descendant. Unless he was not simply the son of David. But also, as Mark has been making the case all through his gospel, unless he was also the Son of God. In other words, what Jesus is saying to the scribes is, your categories are too small. Your categories are too small in the way you're thinking about who the Messiah is and what he's come to do. They're they're too small to describe who I am and what I've come to do. When the people of Jesus' day thought about the Messiah, they thought about a coming, conquering hero. Now today, if we look back to Jesus, if we don't believe that he's the son of God, then we generally believe we view him as a great man or a great prophet or a great teacher. And Jesus is saying the same thing to us that he said to them. If that's the way you're thinking about who I am, then your categories are too small. I am a great teacher, but I'm much more than just a great teacher. And if you think that that's all that I am, then you're missing it. You're missing it. Now, at this point, you may be saying, all right, Jesse, you've got to connect this for me. All right? 
What does this have to do with using my resources for others instead of simply using my resources for myself? Well, the only way that you and I are changed, the only way that we can go from someone who uses our resources to create our own covering to using our resources for the good of those around us is if we see who Jesus is. If we understand that Jesus is not simply the Son of David, but Jesus is the Son of God. And if I see that Jesus is the Son of God, that changes everything. See, if Jesus is just the Son of David, if He's just another dude, if He's just a great teacher, that's not really life transforming. That might make me feel guilty for not doing what He says, and it might increase my efforts to try to create a a works righteousness or covering for myself, but it doesn't really change anything fundamentally. But if Jesus is the Son of God, who took on human flesh to live a life of perfect obedience to His Father, and then to die for sin on the cross in my behalf, to give me a covering, to cover my sin, to atone for my sin, then that changes everything. If 2 Corinthians 5.21 is true. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. If that's true, we can stop continually trying to use our resources to create a covering for ourselves and receive the covering that Jesus offers to us. If 2 Corinthians 8 is true, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich if I know who Jesus is if I know that he became poor for me because he loved me then I can quit using my treasures on myself and I can give away my time and my talent and my resources to others if I know I have a father who has given Jesus for me And oh, who by the way controls the entire universe and who works all things, even hard things for my good, I can quit trying to find security in what I own or where I live or who I know or how much money I have in the bank. If I know that Jesus loves me, that God is for me, then that changes everything. John Lehrer that he, he lost his job uh, and he, he went home. He, he'd always traveled a lot, but he went home and his wife was working to support them. And so he stayed home to take care of their young daughter. And he said, really, he'd always been a terrible dad. He's always been on the road for long periods of time when he was at home. He's always staring at a screen. He said his daughter's first words were not dad, but they were Apple because he always had an iPad in his hands. He said he never put her down to sleep for the first 16 months of her life. And so Jonah Lear decided that his daughter was going to be the way he redeemed himself. That his daughter, the way he took care of her, was going to be the way, the thing that he used to cover his shame. He says he even thought, he wanted to be able to say, he wanted to see the headlines, Fired Rider Becomes Devoted Family Man. Disgraced author becomes father of the year. He, he, he wanted to create his own covering for what he had done, for his failing. He said one night his, his wife was out and so for the first time he had to put his daughter uh, down by himself and he said he went through the usual ritual of Sesame Street and glass of milk and he read her some stories. 
was he just kept asking for a mother. And she wouldn't be comforted. And so he, he tried some more. He read some more books. He sang her some songs. He laid down on the floor next to her. But she just kept asking for her mother. And so finally he went and he sat in the hall and cried as he listened to her cry herself to sleep because he refused to be comforted by him. And this is what he said. I wanted her to be my redemption. And she wanted nothing to do with me. She wanted nothing to do with me. He, he, he thought, man, if I can get this right, then the way I take care of her, and I'm a hero at this, that's going to be a covering for me. But it wasn't working. Fast forward a year. Uh, he said his daughter had grown the love of the, the television show Doc McStuffins. Uh, where there's a, there's a little girl who's a doctor who takes care of all her toys and makes them well. And so they had to play Doc McStuffins. And of course, she had to be the doctor and he had to be one of the toys that she was making well. And so she got her doc kit out and she asked him to lie down and she examined his arms and legs and he had to explain, well, this is where I burned myself or this is how I broke my finger. And he said she, she took the doc kit and he was amazed at her patience as she patiently went over all of his wounds and covered him with gauze and band-aids and scotch tape. And he said that they played that game every day for months. And this is what he said. I thought I was taking care of my child, but really she was taking care of me. I thought I was taking care of my child and that was going to be my redemption, but really she was taking care of me. We want to do something. We want to take care of somebody. To work redemption for ourselves. To to cover our shame. To make ourselves okay. But Jesus says to us, lay down and let me take care of you. Let me bandage your wounds. Let me forgive your sins. Let me restore your relationship with my Father and bring you back into my family. And make you the person that you were always meant to be. See, if I I can see that, if I can see Jesus loving me in that way, if I can see Jesus dying to provide a covering for me, if, if I can hear the words of Romans 8 and believe them, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If I can hear that and believe that, I can quit trying to use my resources to to craft inadequate coverings and to try to create a false sense of security for myself. And I can give my resources away. I can use my resources to love God and to love people the way that Jesus has loved me. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we try so hard to, to make ourselves okay and to, to work redemption for us. But we can't do that. And we always fail when we strike off in that direction. Uh, would you help us to see what Jesus has done for us and to continue to come back to him for that covering, uh, for that love, for that security that we need. Bring us to Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.